Welcome to the Level Up English podcast, the best place to come to practice the English language, learn about the British accent and culture. With me, your host, Michael Lavers. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Level Up English podcast. And well, do I have an exciting episode for you today? Because today we're joined by Kevin Stroud from the History of English podcast. And it really is an honor to be joined by Kevin because he is such a long time podcast host. His podcast has been going for, I think he said, about 10 years now, which is really incredible. But of course, today we'll be looking all at the history of English and we're going to be covering quite a lot here. Just to give you a preview of some things that we will be covering in this episode, we will be looking at why TH doesn't have its own letter. And we're going to be talking about what part of England the English language was standardised from, when the first dictionaries came, why English has so many French words, and also why does English have so many silent letters, like the K in night, for example. We talk a bit about why we have different words for things like pig and pork and cow and beef. We also talk a little bit about surnames in English, like where my name comes from and why people have different surnames. That's very interesting for me. And then on the private podcast that comes out this Friday, I quiz Kevin on some words that I found. I wanted to test him on some words and maybe if he could tell us anything about the origins, like where they come from. And something in that private episode really blew my mind. And he explained the difference between tea and chai. Two words that mean the same thing, but why different languages use them differently. That really blew my mind. And I hope you can hear that one as well this Friday. So I really do think this is a fascinating episode. I could have spoken to Kevin for many, many hours, but I didn't. <laughs> uh, probably good for him. And I hope you enjoy it as well. I will say, though, I will admit there are some difficult terms and words that come up in this episode. I will do my best to define these on the video version of the podcast. So if you want some extra help on YouTube, I will put some of the definitions to these words on the screen to help you. And of course, if you're a member the transcript will help you even more because you can read everything that is being said. So yeah, feel free to check the video if you have any uncertainties or the transcript if you want some more help. And if you want to join the transcripts, you can become a member at levelupenglish.school. It's a big episode today, so let's get right into it. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kevin Stroud. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Michael, and I'm joined today by Kevin from the History of English podcast. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much for joining me. I am very excited to talk with you because I love history like you do, and I love language and English, but I don't know so much. I don't know enough about the history of English specifically. So this is where I'm hoping you can fill in some gaps and educate the listeners as well. Um, but first of all, could you maybe tell us a bit about your podcast, how long it's been going and why you started it? 
Yeah, the podcast is the History of English podcast, obviously, and it is a chronological history of the English language. Uh, so we do it beginning actually before English even existed. We begin with the ancient Proto-Indo-European language, which is, uh, I think, an, an important point for your listeners to understand, which is that English is much older than the language we call English. You know, it, it has an ancestor, pretty much every language evolved out of an earlier language. And most of the languages of Europe evolved out of a, a more or less common language called the Proto-Indo-European language, to use the technical term. And again, almost all of the languages of Europe descended from that language, as did English. So that's where we began the story. And I think that's very important to the story of English because English is kind of unusual in that it has so many influences from so many different languages. So we have a lot of Latin influence, French influence, some Greek influence, Norse influence. And so by beginning at the language that is the predecessor of all of those languages and tracing it out, I think it helps listeners to understand how English has this kind of mixed vocabulary. So that's really the, the, the scope of the podcast. We begin there, work through, of course, the Proto-Indo-European language becomes Proto-Germanic, and we talk about Latin, and then it goes into Old English. And then from there, we've gone through the Middle English period, which is the period of, of Chaucer. And at the current point in the podcast, we're at Shakespeare. So we've covered the very beginnings of early modern English in the late 1500s. And we continue from there. But when I, I say it's the story of English, it's really more than the story of the language, because I also talk about history. It's kind of half history, half language. And I try to tie the language into the history. And I think that keeps it a little bit interesting because, let's face it, if you're doing a podcast about the technical developments of English, it can get really boring. And by tying it into an overall historical narrative, I think it, it sort of ties the thread together and keeps it a little bit more interesting for the listener. So there's a lot of just history in there mixed with language. And, and that's the basic conceit and idea of the podcast. Mm, amazing. Where do you see it going in the future? Do you see yourself like getting up to present day and then will it be complete or what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's the idea is to take it all the way through to the present day. And we might spend a little bit of time talking about you know, where English will go from here as far as the future, but it's not the future of English podcast. It's the history of English podcast. So we're going to focus, you know, do, do as much history as I can. And I, I, I think, you know, bringing it up to the modern day, I don't know if it'll come all the way up to the current year, uh, even though I do sometimes cover the history year by year. Uh, but we'll certainly bring it into the 20th and, and 21st centuries, and at least in some general sense, because the language is still evolving and changing. There's still things to talk about even today. And then that'll probably be it. Uh, I might do some supplemental episodes along, you know, afterwards. There are a few things. That, the drawback of doing a chronological podcast is once you've covered a particular topic, you've 
gone beyond that point. Mm-hmm. And so it's difficult to go back and revisit something. And there are a few things that I might like to revisit uh, that I just, for one reason or another, didn't cover in the regular podcast. And so maybe when the series is complete, I might be able to revisit that. Like I would like to do an, an in-depth look at Beowulf which is the great, you know, old English epic poem, and maybe do a little bit more detailed look at Canterbury Tales and things like that. But, uh, but that would be supplemental after the podcast is done. Yeah, I can imagine you've done, you've done an episode and then maybe a few weeks later, you learn something new about the mm-hmm. topic. So, yeah. Oh, I should have included that. Like, yeah, <laughs> that happens a lot. And, I, and the one period that that happened uh, it, with more than anything else was the Greek period, because that was mm-hmm. still pretty early on in the podcast. And um, I had talked about the Proto-Indo-Europeans and how they divided. And of course, Greek is a, an offshoot of Proto-Indo-European as well. And I covered the entire Greek period in two or three episodes. I could have spent 10 episodes on that. And there are elements of that that still feed into the podcast, because obviously Greek you know, there's a lot of Greek influence coming in during the Renaissance. And, you know, it's something that feeds all the all the great, you know, the Trojan War and you know all those great Greek classics feed through medieval literature. And there were lots of things that I just briefly touched on that I would I would have loved to have spent more time on. So, again, these are the things that I might revisit when everything is is done. But uh, but that's just the nature of a chronological podcast. Mm hmm. Yeah, I do think it's really important for English learners, especially to understand, you know, not necessarily detailed history, but at least that English is the result of many languages coming together and merging and stuff like that, because that explains the inconsistencies, doesn't it? And how the spelling is inconsistent, the pronunciation changes. And I I suppose it's also interesting to see how that changes over time as well. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the key I think for anyone learning English, uh, even native speakers, you know, acquiring the language from youth. And I have a five year old now, who I, I have a a sixteen year old and a five year old, and I've done the podcast between the two of them, <laughs> and so I look at the learning process that my five-year-old has and I compare it to my 16-year-old and I can see differences, things I didn't know then that I know now and how, you know, I, I, for example, I see uh, my son, who's the five-year-old, just now starting to acquire the TH sound, which is within European languages is relatively rare. Uh, It's not an extremely common sound and it's a sound that a lot of people learning English uh, have a tough time acquiring, and it's a little bit tricky for children to acquire it. And I see him struggling with it, and now he's to the point where he's starting to pick it up. But these are little things that I, I realize that we have these sounds that uh, just aren't maybe aren't natural that require a little more effort. And uh, I understand that in a way now that I didn't understand it, you know, 16 years ago. Mm, okay, that's interesting. You're seeing you're seeing it come mm. come up in him, I guess. I mean, it sounds like he's already ahead of me because my accent, the one I have, I don't really use THs very well. Um, it's more like an F sound. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, my, that's my own problem. But And that's very story. common. Uh, <laughs> and you have, you know, obviously there are English accents that still don't use it. Uh, yep. A lot of Irish accents will, will not use it. Uh, and so it's just one of those things that, you know, it's it's a sound that's native to the language, but wasn't native to other 
European languages. Some had it, but but for the most part, it didn't. That's why we don't really have a specific letter for it. The the Romans mm-hmm. didn't have the th sound. Um, they had they had borrowed some Greek words that had a a similar sound, and so they had had to come up with a way to represent that sound, and they did it with the putting t and h together. So we sort of inherited that spelling convention from from Latin. But uh, believe it or not, if you were around a thousand years ago, the early the earliest period of English, Old English, represented it with a completely different letter that doesn't exist anymore. Actually, two different letters. There was the mm-hmm. letter thorn, uh, which kind of looks like a P, but the loop is in the middle of the stem rather than the, at the top. And they also had a letter called Ev, which uh, sort of looks like a fancy lowercase D with a line through the stem. But at any rate, the the early English speakers had to come up with their own way to represent that sound. Later, of course, after English is, is, you know, we have the Norman Conquest, 1066, we have all the French influence and Latin influence coming in. That's when the TH spelling convention comes in. Now, this is obviously a digression, but it's just pointing to the, the idea that you mentioned about English, um, how it incorporates these elements from other languages and even spelling conventions. You know, the TH that we use all the time is not a native English spelling convention. It's something we took from Latin, where they didn't even have the sound. So a lot of this happens throughout the history of English. It's English speakers and writers and scribes trying to figure out how to represent the language uh, without having, you know, maybe a native way or a good way of doing it. Mm, Okay. I I did hear a lot of the, hmm, you'll you'll explain it much better than me, but a lot of the maybe inconsistencies or problems of English developed as a result of they're almost being two forms, one spoken form and one mm-hmm. uh, written form. Because there was, there was a time when many people could speak, but not many people could read or write. Correct. And, uh, and Is there something there that you could talk about? I don't know. <laughs> well, that's true even today. When we talk about standard English, what we're really talking about is is a written form of English. And it's not necessarily the English that most people speak. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, people love to correct everybody's grammar and and spelling and all that. But it's because we have this sort of textbook English, which is, again, standard. But uh, but that's there's always that discrepancy that exists as far as the overall development of the language. The first real attempts to standardize the written language occurred during the Old English period, and uh, it occurs actually within the the part of England, uh, I think, where you live, kind of in the southern and western part of England, the part that was called Wessex um, in, in Old English period. And that written standard becomes the early English written standard because that's where the kings were that's if you if you go back to anglo-saxon history there were many different kings in different parts of england because it was divided into smaller kingdoms but it was the wessex kingdom that ultimately became the dominant kingdom and so that's really where we see the first attempt within the 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 royal court and the scribes trying to write to that standard and that's helpful, but it, it also is a problem when we're looking at Old English because it kind of tends to, to mask the regional variations. The thing is, in early forms of written English, it was a phonetic writing system. 
there were no dictionaries. We really don't have dictionaries until we get to the 1600s, until mm. near the end of Shakespeare's life, we get the first dictionary. Wow. And we really don't have completely standard spellings until then, even though it's developing along the way. And so people were writing phonetically, and the way they wrote tended to match the way they spoke. So people in different parts of England pronounced words differently, so they spelled words differently. And that's helpful as far as tracking down old accents and dialects and figuring out the way people spoke. But once that Wessex standard emerged in late Old English, it sort of took over and it it hid some of the other dialects around the country. But then the French come in in 1066 and that Old English, pretty much Old English, what a lot of people don't realize is English more or less disappeared as a written language for about a century and a half, almost two centuries. Now, of course, the people were still speaking it, the peasants and common people, but anyone in a position of authority, whether in the government or the church or anywhere else, was speaking Latin or French. And as a written language, that was pretty much it for a long time. And so once English starts to reemerge in the late 1200s, 1300s, it's now a completely different language. A lot of French some Latin vocabulary built into it. And now the spellings have changed because all these writers and scribes are French trained. Mm-hmm. That's where we get the THs coming in. And, and that's where we have sounds in English that are disappearing, but are preserved in spellings today. And my favorite example of this is the word knight, like in a, a knight in shining armor. It has six letters but only three of them are pronounced the N, the I, and the T, night. There's a K at the front, which, which represents a sound that was there at one time in mm-hmm. Old English. And the GH in the middle represents a sound, a, a sound that was once there. So the way it would have been pronounced would have been more like knicht. And so the K is disappearing at the front, the sound in the middle is disappearing. But we have these French scribes trying to preserve the way it was pronounced at the time. And by the time we get into early modern English, some of these spellings have become conventional, especially knight, because knight's a very common word in literature. Everybody's writing about King Arthur and Charlemagne, and there's lots and Mm -hmm. lots and lots of of stories about knights. So this spelling has become fully you know ingrained by that point and so we have these weird spellings today a lot of them develop through that process and i know for people learning english it's a nightmare in fact everybody says how difficult english is you know english grammar is not that difficult compared to other languages we don't have grammatical gender in english we don't have mm-hmm. different you know la and la and lay like french and you know all these different forms of the article and all that. we don't worry about that so much so our grammar is not that difficult the pronunciation isn't terribly difficult we have a few unique sounds what's really difficult about english is spelling and it's because we have these this is sort of our, our legacy a germanic language with latin and french imposed on it Latin and French scribes trying to spell it with some of those sounds disappearing and those old spellings preserved, and it's never been completely reformed. And so that's that's one of the fascinating parts. And it's really where knowing the history of the English can help you understand the way it's spelled today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think native speakers do that a lot too. Like when I see, you know, if I see a prefix that looks like it could be Greek, 
then I kind of can guess if there's a ph later in the word in the suffix, I can guess it's pronounced as a th, not a right. puh or something like that. So you, you you kind of maybe subconsciously uh, use the history to help you as well. Absolutely, um, and, and ph is a good example. It's another one of those sounds that Latin took from Greek and had to figure out a way to represent oh, okay. that sound, and so they come up with ph because it, it's. It's at the time it wasn't a P sound. It wasn't an, and it was sort of, I think most linguists would say it was an aspirated P sound, but it was something that Latin didn't have. And so, because remember Latin had a letter P um, and it needed a way and it had a letter for F this new Greek sound was kind of in between. And so it becomes, it's just very aspirated sound. H represents the h, h sound, so you kind of put the H after the P, 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 p sort of aspirated P, but then it becomes an F sound in Latin because mm-hmm. it's an unusual sound and and through kind of get simplified, through, yeah, and just becomes an F sound, and that's how we in, inherited all those words, all those Greek words like philosophy and elephant and all those words, just pronounced them as F. But you're right; once you, whenever you see a PH pronounced as an F. 99% of the time, you're looking at a, a, an ancient Greek word that's passed into English. And again, knowing that little bit of history can really help as far as understanding why things are done the way they are. And for all the people that complain about English spelling, there's a different way of looking at it. And you think about it, it, it preserves the rich history of the language. Mm-hmm. And what we have really with English spelling today is kind of a time capsule. It It, it shows us very often where words came from and sometimes when the words came into the language. Um, a, a good example of that is the word give. Old English had the word, but it was give because mm-hmm. when the G sound appeared before a front vowel, so we'll say the letter I represents that front vowel sound, um, it softened to a Y sound. So the word give became yiv in Old English. Ger became year. All these words. So what happens, though, is then England is invaded by the Vikings who bring in Old Norse and settle in eastern and northern parts of, of England and Britain. So what happens then is we get Norse influence coming into English and Old Norse and Old English were very similar. If you go back in time, uh, the languages were similar, but they had the original hard G sound at the front of that word. And English kind of readopts that Norse or adopts that version of the word, which was actually the, the original version of the word. So when we ever we see a word like that where we have a G before an I, but it's pronounced as a G, uh, as a hard G, then we know that that something's funny is going on there. That's not a native English word, uh, you know. So at any rate, there are little clues like that if you know a little bit about the history of the language that can tell us that this word is not is came from somewhere else. It's not necessarily native to English. Mm, yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, speaking of Vikings, we mentioned before the. K sound like in night. Um, when I was at school, I was taught this, but let me know if it was it's wrong. I heard that a lot of the sounds with a silent K, like knee, not, um, knife, these were Norse words where they used to pronounce the K. Do you know if that's some true? are uh, some. knife? I think is a Norse word. Some, but but it's it's native to English as well. 
So okay. English had those. The word, um, the word knight itself, K-N-I-G-H-T, is a native English word. Uh, would not have been spelled that way in Old English. I think it's normally C-N-I-H-T mm. or something like that. But yeah, but no, that's a native Germanic sound. And uh, Old English had it. Old Norse had it. You think about Norse, uh, the, the Old Norse king, Canute. I was just thinking, yeah. yeah. Spelled different ways, but typically C-N-U-T is another example of that where it's just, but it was common in English at the time as well. It's just a sound, though, that disappeared um, through the Middle English period. I think by the time you get to Shakespeare, if you were living in the time of Shakespeare, you would have heard people still pronouncing the word night as knicht. Mm-hmm. But the more common pronunciation would have probably been night or night or, you know, some vowel variation at the time. But at any rate, that sound was disappearing. And we know that because, again, writing was still phonetic somewhat. And so we see people starting to drop these letters and spellings. And then also, once you get into the 1500s, we start to have people writing about the way English is pronounced. And they specifically, these are sort of the early, you know, linguists who are are actually describing the language. And they're saying, you know, people used to pronounce the K and night, but these days people aren't really pronouncing it anymore. So we actually do get a better sense of how these sounds evolved over time. Mm, Okay. I did actually get a question because I I mentioned to my followers on Instagram that I'll be talking to someone. I didn't say it was you, but I said someone someone who knows their stuff about this. And one of the top questions was, why do we have so many silent letters in English? But I guess we kind of answered that already. So well, we have, nice. I think, again, some sounds disappeared. Hmm. But then we talk about the influence of other languages as well. So, you know, we have a lot of French influence, about a third Roughly mm-hmm. speaking, of the words we have in English come from French. French has a lot of silent letters. So if you think about words like ballet, buffet, the silent T's at the end, uh, you know, these things happen because we just happen to borrow words from other languages where, the again, the same basic thing had happened there. Spellings were fixed, but the s- pronunciations kept changing and words fell silent. So, yeah, but it, it's just a product of of history and the fact that Spellings became fixed in many Western European languages before the modern pronunciations were established. So we're seeing a lot of older pronunciations there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And the, I, I should add one other thing, because there's never one simple answer to these questions. Uh, you then have the problem in the 1500s of scribes and you know experts on the language trying to recreate the history of the language. So you have a word like debt, which was spelled in Middle English, D-E-T-T-E. There was no B in debt, but it comes from the Latin word debit, which Mm -hmm. we now have in English as a separate word. So it had a B in it in Latin, but it didn't have it. It passed through French. It was lost in French. English borrowed it from French. It never had a B in it in English, but then you had these... um, these you know experts on the language uh, who were all trained in Latin. Remember, grammar schools in the 1400s and 1500s, they're, they're just teaching Latin in grammar schools, not English. So they say, well, this is a Latin word. Latin had a B in it. Let's put a B in it because that <laughs> helps people see you know, it's, a, it's a Latin word. So debt gets a B. Doubt 
gets a B. Um, a lot of words, receipt gets a P. Mm. Um, you know, How about lamb? Lamb, lamb I think, is a little bit different case. That's a, a native English word where the sound was lost at the end. Okay. Lamb, dumb, um, comb. You know, a lot of these, we lost that sound. So they but, used but, to be pronounced like lamber right, or something. Right, right. Mm. And and Old English would have had inflectional endings. Again, this is English. English used to work more like Latin and, I mean, sorry, well, like Latin, but like French and Spanish and, and Romance languages and German. Most European languages um, have suffixes that are put on the ends of words to indicate, you know, grammar, you know, case, tense, mood, all that. Um, English lost most of that along the way. Again, that's why I say English grammar is relatively simple. But when you had endings on word, so lamb, but it wouldn't have just been, it would not have been pronounced as simply lamb. It might've been lambu or lamban or something mm -hmm. at the end. So that B would have been pronounced before that suffix. Once the suffix falls off though, you've got this weird sound at the end, two consonants together that don't really work together very well. So it's just natural in that environment for people to drop that final consonant. So this happens a lot as well. So that's why I say when in trying to explain English spelling and why we have letters for sounds that don't really exist today, um, it, it's just a lot of reasons behind it. It all has to do with history. But there are many different reasons, and there's never been a serious attempt to reform English spelling for good or bad. So we're kind of stuck with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, I agree. It's fascinating, though, but probably very frustrating as a learner. Mm -hmm. um, I, I also feel like there are connections between language and culture as well. So I thought about this before, and I wonder if... Uh, the languages we get words from, the origin languages, it kind of reflects what was important to their culture. So I heard before, you know, a lot of like Viking words were very like concrete nouns, like like knife and, and hat and these kind of short, um, you know, monosyllabic words. And then a lot of French words are more about law and food and cuisine, that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Have you noticed that pattern too? Absolutely. And this actually probably gets into the uh, the reason why I'm doing the podcast in a ah. sense. So let me digress for a moment and explain sure. that. When I was in college at university, um, my, my degree was in political science. And your listeners should know that I'm actually an attorney. That's my, my, my day job. I, I call um, that a lawyer, right, in British English? A lawyer, attorney. No, no, no wait. Would I call it a lawyer? So, solicitor, maybe, solicitor? or a barrister, or what's the difference? What's the difference between attorney and lawyer for you? Nothing. Uh, okay, okay. So I would call it solicitor. I'll tell you the difference. Attorney is a French word. Lawyer comes from Old Norse. Oh, Law I didn't know that. Okay, Norse. yeah, but no, basically the Carry same on. thing. No, but it's fine. But but in college and university, um, I almost mind. I was like one class short of a minor in anthropology. I loved anthropology and particularly cultural anthropology, study of different cultures. And one of the courses that I took was called language and culture. And it was a discussion about how culture influenced language and language influences culture. That was where I was first introduced to the idea of proto-Indo-European, the idea that there was an older language. It really kind of sparked an interest. And so 
move forward a few years, I've gone to law school. I'm now practicing as an attorney. I eventually settled on an office practice where I was drafting a lot of documents, wills, trusts, business agreements. And uh, I'm constantly in, in, in legal English, we're constantly struggling with what words to use because the vocabulary of legal English is heavily French. And this goes back to 1066, Norman Conquest, French speakers, they impose law and order on the country. And for the next three or four centuries, law is in French and Latin. The proceedings are conducted in French. They're recorded in Latin. Later on, they're even recorded in French. So our vocabulary today is almost, it's, it's 80, 90% French, a little bit of Latin, very little native English in there. And but when we use it, but that makes it a challenge because we have a lot of words in English uh, legalese that are not common words. So I I drafted a lot of wills and uh, a standard provision in every last will and testament is I give, devise and bequeath all of my property and estate to my spouse or whoever. No no one listening knows what that means. Exactly. Well, give, devise, and bequeath. Well, give, I've already talked about. It's an old word. It's the Norse version, but English had a version of it. Everybody knows what give means. I give you something. But then we tack on devise and bequeath. Well, these are Latin and French words, are really French words. And this is a great challenge in the law because when we're writing legal documents, we want it to be simple enough that the average person can read it and understand it. But then we also want to make sure we're legally precise. And lawyers have a tendency to pair words together. A simple, basic English word with a fancy Latin or French Mm -hmm. legal term. So I give, devise, and bequeath. Uh, They all kind of mean the same thing. And there's a modern trend in the law that says we don't really even need to use devise and bequeath. We can just say I give everything to my spouse. Uh, When I do a power of attorney, So I'm giving someone legal authority to act for me. It usually begins with, uh, I make, constitute, and appoint my spouse as my duly authorized agent. Well, I make is a native English word. Everybody can understand that one. Constitute and appoint, you get into French and Latin. So it's multi-syllable words, a little fancier. Um, You know, I said last will and testament. Last will is Old English. Testament is Latin. You don't really need to say that. You could say the last will of Kevin Stroud. I don't need to say last will and testament. But that's how legal English works. We we pair up these simple native old English words with these fancier French and Latin words. So we cover all our bases. That's part of what sparked an interest in the history of English for me, is I knew enough about the history of English to know where these words came from. And there was this difference in register. So people talk about things like in in food, for example, classic example, everybody gives it, but you have an old English cow, but you eat beef, which is the French word. You have old English pig or swine, but you eat pork, the French word. Mm -hmm. You know, you have uh, an old English deer, but you eat venison. French word, Latin word. So, so what that's showing is during that period after the Norman Conquest, it was the, the peasants in the field speaking English that caught the animals, caught the game, prepared oh. the food. But it was the French speakers sitting around the table who were consuming it. They had different words for the same thing. And so over time, the animal tends to be used, just described with the native English word, but the prepared food tends to be described with French. 
So yeah, you mentioned cuisine, law. Mm -hmm. This happens in a lot of different areas um, where this happens a lot. It's just, again, the nature of the history of English. And it's something that still, to a certain extent, you know, happens today. Once you get into periods of, you know, when, when medical technology became uh, more common, English starts borrowing from Greek. A lot of Greek is used to describe ailments and conditions uh, in, in English. So, again, there's, there's, a, there's a logic to it if you understand the history, um, but it does help to explain a lot about the vocabulary and the way we use words. I'm learning so much already. That, that's fantastic. It's so cool to imagine all of that. It can be mind-blowing. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's the thing that I enjoy so much about it. And, and I try, in each episode, I try to include some of those facts to those aha moments mm, that, that yeah. make people really stand up and go. And the other thing about it is we, you know, in, in I think most of the English-speaking world, we don't really cover the history of English when we're learning English in school. We just mm-hmm. learn, particularly rules of grammar and spelling. We're just taught that's the rule. That's the way it is. And I think in a lot of cases, the teachers don't even know the history either. A lot of this just mm-hmm. isn't, isn't taught. And so that was part of the fascination for me is just trying to trace down and discover why it is that we say the words we say and, and why we pronounce them the way they do and spell them the way we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I believe also my surname came from the Norman invasion. It, 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 it's hard, you can't really go back that far and, and tell, but from what I can tell, my family have, have lived in, um, in, in Cornwall for mm-hmm. you know, many hundreds of years. But then my name, I think, is a French name, or used to be a French name. So, I'm not sure. It, it, it sounds French. Is it French word for wash? Is that what? Yeah, what it's maybe something it like that. I, I, but, I've uh, seen different... Different interpretations. So maybe it was a, a washer. So that's the other fascinating thing. I've covered this in the podcast is that most English surnames are either occupational or geographical. Mm-hmm. So it either represents where someone was from, uh, rivers, or you know that type of thing, um, or they're usually occupational though. So you have you know all kinds of tailor, farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, Cooper, someone who made barrels, Fletcher, someone who made arrows. Um, you know, so this is very interesting in terms of genealogy as well. My surname Stroud is very, a little bit unusual, but it's an, it's an old English word. It's an Anglo-Saxon word. It meant a kind of grown up, uh, grown over shrubby place. Mm. And uh, I think the first Strouds lived not too far from where you're from. I think they lived in and around uh, Devon in that area. I yeah, think that's where I fact, am. There's, a, there's a town in England called Stroud today that's oh, I think, yeah. in, in the yeah, West Country. So it's sort of in that general vicinity. But the first oh. uh, descendant or first ancestor who lived there, uh, it, was an, it was a locational surname. It was just describing the place. This is, you know, Lauren who lives by the Stroud. And, and so, mm-hmm. yeah, but this is very common. Uh, again, tracing back genealogy you know you might not be able to trace your specific line but you can certainly trace back the history of your your surname and it's important to note that before the norman conquest people really didn't have surnames Mm -hmm. in in earlier periods of english there was no need for them you don't really need a surname until 
you're you're taxing people you you have tax records you got to keep track of who paid and who didn't and the population is growing and there's another reason too and it has to do with the norman conquest before uh, if you go back to old english names were very different if you look at old english kings you've got Ethelbert and Ethelred and all these kind of weird names going on, Edgefrith and weird stuff. Once you get in to after the Norman Conquest, you get the introduction of more French names, William and uh, Thomas, which I think has a biblical origin. And, you know, Elizabeth and, you know, these Matilda becomes a very common name early on. Um, the problem is Everybody has those same handful of names. If you go in any, look at any tax record, almost everybody living in a village is named William or Thomas <laughs> or John. It's only three or four names. So you now have to distinguish them. So yeah. now it's okay. So this is William the Taylor becomes William Taylor, you know, John by the river, it becomes John Rivers. And you know, that, that's how these surnames develop over time. It's another topic I love, surnames, and I love how different regions and countries do it differently. Like um, in Scandinavia, they'll do your father, right? Like right. Johnson by the way, or something like that. Very common in English. Johnson, Thompson, yeah. Richardson shows the Norse influence on English. Yeah, okay, Because yes, yeah. you've got, remember, after late 700s into the 1800s is really when the Viking invasions began, and they eventually conquer uh, about half of modern-day England. The northern and eastern part becomes the Dane law. I mentioned that law comes from Old Norse. Well, there we see it. It's one of the first uses there. Mm -hmm. uh, the Old English word for law was domus or dooms, but uh, it, we use it today uh, we still have that word. If you think about a variation of it, it's the word deem. If you make a judgment about something, you deem it to be good or bad. So this is related mm. to the old English word. But the word law comes in with the Vikings. And, uh, and, and that's where we get a lot of Norse influence. And I love one of my favorite examples of the Norse influence is the difference between a skirt and a shirt. It's referring to the same article of clothing, if you were to go back a thousand years, because originally it was like a tunic it covered the whole body with like a belt around the middle in old english it was called a shirt because the original germanic word was skirt so that's the norse version but in old english that sk sound shifted to a sh sh sound we see that a lot in old english where old english softened i, I talked about give becoming mm -hmm. yiv. So some of these hard guttural sounds we make in the back of the throat, like the g sound moves forward. So give becomes yiv and, and skirt becomes shirt, sibilant at the front of the mouth. So what happens when the Vikings arrive is you've got old English speakers calling it a shirt and Norse speakers calling it a skirt. And both words get adopted, you know, ingrained into the language. And then, of course, over time, fashions change. And that one-piece tunic now becomes a two-piece, an upper part and a lower part. So shirt gets applied to the top and skirt gets applied to the bottom. But okay. but it, we see this in the language all the time when we encounter two very similar words that are used slightly differently. Um, there's often a reason for that. It has to do with the history of the words and the history the, the greater history of the people who use those words. 
Amazing. Well, I could talk to you for hours, but I won't put you through that. Maybe we can just end it here. But before we go, can you let people know where they can find out more about you and how to get the podcast as well? Yeah, it's the History of English podcast. It's uh, easy to find. It's right there. The The website is the History of English podcast. It's actually just historyofenglishpodcast.com. And it's available on pretty much any podcast streaming platform that you use. Like I said, I've been doing it now since uh, I think the first episodes was back in 2012. So it's Every now decade. been uh, 11, 11 years now. And I, I spent quite a few months preparing before I ever released an episode. So I really began in 2011, but uh, it's a pretty massive project. You may look at it and think it's kind of overwhelming because I'm, I'm now in 160 some episodes, but uh, you can kind of pick it up anywhere along the way if you don't want to start at the beginning. And uh, hopefully your listeners will, will, will find something that they in, enjoy and hopefully learn something along the way. Yeah, that's what I did. I think I started with the Celtic one because that's interesting for me. And I, I might go back from the beginning and start all of them if I'm feeling brave at some point. Yeah. <laughs> well, good luck. It's a lot of time. <laughs> it's, it's it's 11 or 12 years of my my life. So, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, like I said, if you can't take all of it, just pick a spot and work from there. Amazing. Well, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. And I've yeah. enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Level Up English podcast. If you would like to leave a question to be answered on a future episode, then please go to levelupenglish.school forward slash podcast. That's levelupenglish.school slash podcast. And I'll answer your question on a future episode. Thanks for listening.